most often when we're talking about building bridges, we're talking about people in conflict and we're trying to bridge the gap that separates them. It may be if you live in uh, different parts of the Western culture, in particular the left and the right, and you try to build a bridge. John Crossman is a specialist in building a bridge from where you are to your destiny. That is a remarkable thing. And John Crossman, what you're going to hear today is a man who not only talks about it, he not only coaches it, if you will, but he's done it. He's, he's put his life, his family, his legacy, finances, time, effort into helping young men and women move from where they are to a new place of destiny. He's done that across the United States and encouraged people to do it around the world. He has uh, done endowments at major universities. He is a motivator. He is, he, here's what he is. He's a solutioner. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now because we just did it on brave men. He's a solutioner. That's John Crossman. And I am so, uh, I'm really fired up that John's with us today on this, uh, on this podcast on brave men. Uh, when you need discipleship tools to help disciple your son, to help disciple your children, uh, to help your church or your parish move into a place where men are finding their faith and their center in Christ. We have all of that at Christian Men's Network, cmn.men. Brave Men is sponsored by Christian Men's Network. cmn.men or christianmensnetwork.com will take you there, and you'll find tools in over 50 languages from around the world, tools that you need to help disciple men, maximize manhood, strong men in tough times, uh, for your church, men's group, small group. We now have 7,200 small groups in the nation of Brazil in Portuguese. Unbelievable. I mean, amazing what Marcos and his team are doing in Brazil. I was just in Argentina where over 4,000 churches are using the majoring in men, maximize manhood, the majoring in men curriculum to help disciple men. How do you change a nation? You change a nation one man at a time. And that is the secret of John Crossman. John helps change people's lives one person at a time. I'm thrilled for you to be able to hear uh, this man of faith, man of courage, and a man of strength, uh, a man who helps others find their destiny. Today on Brave Men, you'll meet John Crossman. It's Brave Men with Paul Lewis Cole. Wisdom and courage for the journey. Talking with John Crossman, and John Crossman, you've got a radio program. You've got you've had an amazing career working with Trammell Crow, Crossman and Company, real estate, all of these things that you've done. Uh, we could go on and on through the whole bio. But the thing I find fascinating about John Crossman is, uh, as an Anglo man, you have become uh, an advocate of historic black colleges. You've become an advocate of racial diversity. And you've done it from a framework of, of uh, legacy. This has been going on for decades in your life and in your family's life. And uh, how did this become yours, though? Your father was very involved, civil rights. How did this become yours, John? So uh, I, my dad was a Methodist minister, and uh, we moved around a lot. That's what Methodist ministers do. Right. And so my dad, when he was uh, early in his career, became friends, really close friends with a guy named Dr. Oswald Bronson who was the president of um, Bethune-Cookman University. And if you think about it, Dr. Cole, like old school uh, Protestant churches, you have big pulpit and little pulpit, right? right, right and right. so big pulpit's word of God, 
and Little Pulpit's Bake Sales. And I remember my mom, for all my child, she never went behind Big Pulpit. That's a big deal, right? Yeah. And pastors don't give up their pulpits. That they don't, especially if they're in town, you don't give that up. Right. So my dad started a thing in the late 1960s where once a year he would give up his pulpit to Dr. Oswald Bronson. So think about being in Florida in the South, uh, all white congregation, and all of a sudden having this black man as the pastor of the day. And, you know, for most of those white people, they've never been under the authority of a black man before. Right. And so that people that know this get it how risk-taking that was for my dad mm. and how powerful it was. The other part is my dad always had to bring in their concert chorale. So it was this black gospel choir yeah. up there singing, you know, doing, doing the, the service. That's awesome. So I was born in 1971 and uh, every single year of my life, you know, from 1971 all up to my dad retired around 1994, um, I would see the Thum Cookman guest preach and then their concert chorale. So we moved nine times in my childhood, right? So you know how like somebody might say, oh yeah, I know I'm home when I see that street or I see this or whatever. I have three of our siblings. I think we all feel like we have a different city as our hometown because usually high school would anchor it, right? right? Yeah, exactly. And so there's that kind of thing. Um, And we all graduate from different high schools. So the thing about it is though, is Bethune-Cookman was the consistent. So Mm -hmm. when I see a Bethune-Cookman license plate, Mm. I that really resonates with me. Like I feel a connection with it. So that's part of it. I think the other thing I would tell you is that as a child and then growing up, that gospel music was the best Christian music I ever heard. You yeah. know, like yeah. you know, 52 Sundays, 51 is kind of okay, but that 52nd when they came in, yeah, well, it has emotion and life to it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I I'm telling you, I can still think about a song they did. And it gave me goosebumps when I'm nine years old. And I think mm. I could, I'm not going to, but I think I could sing it right now. <laughs> I mean, that's how powerful the memory yeah. it's like hard, yeah. hardwired. So you have that as part of me. And then um, I was a sprinter all through high school and I, I went to Florida State and uh, ran track. There was a sprinter and uh, BAMU, which is a historically black college, it's blocks away. So there's always been this close relationship between the two universities. So all four years of college, I ran the family relays and, when you run the family relays, FSU is the only white school there. It's all the major black colleges plus FSU. So I just grew up in this environment um, that I had a lot of exposure um, to different black leaders, black um, you mm. know contemporaries, black friends. That was very, very part of my life. You know, sometimes oh, I don't know yeah. if you have friends, you, you meet people say, I never met a black person until I went to college or something like that. My, my life experience was the exact opposite. Yeah. So then when I made the move into working professionally, all of a sudden my whole world became all white and that was weird. And then as I started really researching, as I got older, more successful, you know, real estate is, is, is an, an example, institutional racism. And sometimes I say that people get uncomfortable. I'm not saying that the institution needs to be burnt to the ground. What I'm saying is the institution needs to get tweaked, right? Mm-hmm. So there's 107 historically black colleges across America they were created predominantly at the end of the Civil War to educate the Black population. And st- until I got involved, zero were teaching real estate. Absolutely none. Really? And so, yeah. And so I actually wrote a white paper um, that I, I did for both the Obama and Trump administrations. And when I did that white paper, I talked about how it was a gap in the civil rights movement. It's like in the civil rights movement, housing was part of the conversation, but it wasn't right. housing you and I would live in. Yeah. yeah, we didn't teach the black population to live in housing like we would, like, you know, 
save money for deposit, buy a home, build equity, that kind of thing. That didn't happen. So it's a modern day issue that we can fix. You know, we can wow. partner. We can. If I told you I wanted to build a medical school at every black college in America, you'd say, gosh, John, you have to raise, you know, billions of dollars. When I tell you I want to make sure I'm providing real estate education at every black college I can, we could do that for, for $3 million. We could do it for all 107. Wow. So it's a completely achievable thing. It is an achievable thing. And, it, and to me, it's uh, when we talk about institutional injustice, Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he saw spiritual blindness and he wept over them. But when he got mad, it was when he tipped over the tables in the synagogue, that was institutional injustice. Mm -hmm. And I think for us as men and women in the United States or any country in the world, we have to have that same mindset. If we're followers of Christ, it should be unacceptable. Where I live in the Fort Worth area, we have now in Fort Worth, I think it just dropped to 11. There's 11 food deserts in the Fort, greater Fort Worth area. So that's, you know, no fresh produce within three miles of someone's home. So uh, that's unacceptable. And it should be unacceptable for every follower of Jesus Christ who believes in the dignity of humans. And, right. and so uh, it takes radicals like yourself. I, you know, you wouldn't call yourself a radical, what you are. Well, yeah. and, and you dress up well and you, and you clean up well, but... <laughs> And, and your well, bio has got a tie on it and all that kind of stuff. But you're one of those <laughs> radicals. And that's the well, way things change. And, you, you know, that's the way things change. When did Jesus become real to you, John? You know, one of the things I'll tell you that um, I always respected my, my dad. I mean, obviously, we didn't get along in normal issues like fathers and sons do. But, yeah. but I always felt like he was really good at his job and good at a pastor. But um, when I went to college, my freshman year, when the first time I could choose to go to church, I did not go to church one time. I had a perfect batting average of <laughs> you went your whole life, and then yeah. bam, yeah, boom! I got to college and didn't go. Um, but then in my sophomore year, I, I started having my own interest in faith, and I can remember vividly having this dream, and it was this piece of wood that looked perfect, and then I, as I looked on the back, it was completely rotted. It was completely wow. rotted. Wow. And then the second part of the dream, I was trying to get into this really big mansion and, and the door kept closing. And finally, I was like, you know, my dad's a pastor. And they're like, reluctantly, they let me in. Wow. And so when I woke up, I was 19 years old. I really felt the sense of like, I look good on the outside, but I'm rotted on the inside. Mm. And that I really could not get into the mansion <laughs> because my, who my dad was. And around that time, I got invited to an FCA meeting at, at FSU. And uh, Ron Miller, uh, who's still a friend of mine, he's actually still a pastor in, in Tallahassee. Wow. He was a great, great three-point shooter, by the way. He was, he was there. And they, they did an altar call. And that was the first time in my life that I stood up and I accepted Christ as my Savior. Wow. So I was 19 years old. And that really, that was a major trajectory moment for me. The, the second part I would tell you is that um, uh, in 2014, I um, had had a lot of different experiences in my life, and I, and I was trying to get back in shape. I was running a lot. I used to be a sprinter, and I was doing distance because you get yeah. older. Kids up. Boy, I ran a race, and I came across the finish line. I ran a half marathon, and I saw an ambulance, and I thought, man, maybe I should walk over that ambulance because I just didn't feel right. I didn't do it, and I waited a couple of days, and I went to my doctor's office, and I got um, diagnosed with clinical depression. And I really blew my mind, like me of all people getting diagnosed with depression. 
And it was the greatest journey to hell I've ever been through. Um, mm. uh, I, I really thought I was going to die. Um, I lost 25 pounds because um, um, I couldn't eat. I could barely function. I was on uh, Zoloft and Klonopin for a year. Um, mm. So I was a psychiatrist and doc, my main doctor. Mm. And my wife was really helpful. But during that time, I really onboarded some things. I remember telling one friend of mine about what was going on, and they started laughing. I'm like, why are you laughing? They were like, God's going to onboard things into you through this. Wow. And um, what I think I learned is I think I spent a lot of my 20s and 30s kind of speaking Christianese. Um, like if you mm. would say, hey, John, how are you doing? I'd say, well, I'm blessed. and I'm good. I'm blessed. Good. Highly favored. Highly <laughs> favored. And I, I kind of pushed down the real feelings and God gave mm. us feelings for a reason. You read the yeah. Psalms like, man, David's talking about feelings. The Old Testament Joseph, when he sees his family, he starts to weep. Oh, I mean, Jesus yeah. wept, right? What? So I had to, I then went through a whole journey of relearning and, and learning how to feel my feelings. And that was kind of the, when I think about the second half journey for me, that's onboarded a whole different ball game, mm. uh, resources and empathy um and and really being able to help relate and i find now a lot of my closest friends are are, are people have been through recovery um who people who struggle with addiction people struggle with all kinds of major things because those folks those are my people they we speak the same language now and i find that very helpful you know struggling through things uh as a follower of christ when you begin to struggle with uh what, whatever that may be and it may be an addiction it may be uh, a sense of self-worth or negative self-worth the struggle, the fact that we're struggling actually means that we care. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're a man listening right now and you're struggling with and dealing with an identity thing or whatever, the fact is, is the reason you're struggling is because you actually care about who you become as a follower of Christ and you become who God designed you to be. Right. What was the, what was the, what were some of the takeaways? And this is fascinating. This is a little sidebar thing. I didn't expect John mm -hmm. with, uh, John Crossman and uh, with uh, Crossman uh, conversation with radio program. And then uh, you're an investor and a philanthropist, former owner of uh, Crossman and company. But the, um, what was it, what would be a couple of the takeaways in that journey where you had these aha moments, John? Well, I think a couple of things. The first one would be, I, you know, I said it was 2014, it was actually 2013. And I want you to really visualize this. I'm a huge football fan. I'm a huge college football fan. Okay. That was the, that was a season four state won the national championship, went undefeated. Hear me say this. I could care less. Wow. Like when that depression hit me, I, I didn't care about eating. I didn't, if you gave me a hundred million dollars cash, I wouldn't care. Yeah. I, I really tried to spend some time with my kids, but I felt really disconnected with them. But I was, it was, I was stripped, 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 mm -hmm. stripped. And, you know, I could show you my journals from then. It was just me in Christ. It was just me in Christ. When you get to the point where you're like, I have nothing, I want nothing. And you're just lying at the feet of Christ. Right. So I think that the first, the takeaway was, I wish I could tell you, I could have gotten to that point without going through the depression. Right. Uh, but I, but I don't think I could have. Right. So I think that takeaway of like learning about being totally, totally stripped down to just me and Jesus. The second thing is I'm grateful for, I went from sympathy to empathy with people that struggle with depression, right? Okay, that, so, that's, that's fascinating. 
From sympathy to empathy means what? It means like if somebody says, hey, I'm struggling with depression and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry that you're going through that. Yeah. When it becomes empathy, it's like, oh, me too. I've been Okay, that you. hurts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that. I feel wow. that. I feel that. Yeah. And and I tell, listen, let me say something. I don't drink. I didn't drink at all, but I wanted to. I used to, I remember thinking to myself, what, I wonder if I knew somebody, I wonder if I have a weed guy out there. <laughs> and, and, but I will tell you, if I start, if I had started drinking, I think I'd be dead. Yeah. I think it would have killed me. I really do. And so, um, you know, learning, learning that from it. And then the final thing was I kind of got a reboot of life. Right. Mm. And, and, and really, um, organized Christianity is awesome. And there's so many things that I get from it and, and give to it. And I love it. There was this other skill set I had to get around. I, I tell people like, sometimes we expect too much in our pastors. We don't go to our pastor when we have a toothache or, you know, we blood a tire in our car, right? We have a, we have a mechanic, we have a dentist. Well, sometimes when we're going through different issues, we need specialized people. And that's why we might need a Christian counselor or um, a men's group that specialized in whatever issue we're struggling with. I I, uh, I went to Al-Anon for a little season during that, and it really helped me. It mm. really helped me. And while my dad never drank around me when I was growing up, I think he was kind of what we would find out as a dry drunk. And so mm -hmm. he still had some of those it, it, this, the tendencies of somebody that struggled with that. So when I went through Al-Anon, it was a different skill set. So a lot of those different skill sets help me be in a better place. Um, I, I will tell you, friends of mine in my, you know, probably late 20s, 30s, early 40s would tell you that I really had some anger issues and I don't get as angry as I used to. Um, I feel a lot more um, calm. And part of that is getting, getting down to the root thing. I also want to say this to you. you. You were listing out some of my accolades. And when you were doing that, I, I kind of mentally was trying to push that off a little bit. And what's really going on there is my addiction, my heroin, if you will, was success. Yeah. Like I would have something bad happen to me. And instead of calling a buddy and being like, man, I am just so sad about this terrible thing. I just kind of ignored it. And then would go after another deal or another promotion or another yeah. whatever. So when yeah. you look at my resume, it, it's impressive. But part of what you're looking at is, is my unhealed wounds. Gosh. Uh, is part of what you're looking at when you look at that long resume. Man, that is, that is so vulnerable, John. But it's so healing for so many of us who are listening right now. Because the pushing away or pushing down, if you will, the denial of, of what's of what reality is in order to get another deal, buy another thing, uh, make another sale. And we use that basically as a coping mechanism to not deal with reality. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Story of 45 years of my life. Absolutely. Wow. And, yes. and so now out of all of that, and, and the beauty of this journey, uh, the John that you've gone through the beauty of the journey that every man has a journey and every man has a story. But out of this came this empathy that put new fuel into something your father had done years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you've got a you've got a whole new fuel speaking life into this whole vision of putting real estate uh, programs into every historic black college is huge. I mean, the minute you say it, I can just I can see it. I can see how it could change things. 
Well, I'll tell you something even weirder than all of that, and, and uh, absolutely true. Um, a couple of years ago, my mom and I got a, we did DNA tests together to prove what we had a theory about, and that is my mom's dad was black. Mm. And so remember, I told you I sprinted in college, and I would always be the only white guy out there on a, you know, four by four hundred team. I have the Nigerian sprinter gene because I'm part Nigerian, right? Okay. And so I don't, I don't lead like that. I don't want to come across Elizabeth Warren E, you know. Right, right, right. But it, but but I will tell you is that you know when you think about the Apostle Paul, where he's like. I'm a Jew, I'm a Roman, mm-hmm. and he's able to connect to people. I think that I'm able to say to people like, look, I'm, I'm white, and yet I have this story that connects me to the Black community where I can talk about uh, certain things. Let me, let me also say this to you. I think it's a really important point is that I've lectured at over 30 different universities across the country, as have you, and people ask me sometimes about all these liberal universities, and I've never had that experience. Now, I have on occasion when I'm lecturing at state university, somebody might say, John, you're sounding a little preachy, right? A little churchy. Um, so that sometimes it happens and I try to be mindful of it. That never happens at historically black colleges, never. One of the weirdest things is, is that there's lots of good conservative Christian folks out there who might look at black colleges and think that's not a place for me. And I'm like, man, you're so wrong. It's the perfect place for you, yeah. right? Yeah. And when we talk about race, I was on a, an interview recently with myself and three black women. And I thought, man, how am I going to have credibility and talk about this, these different hard subjects? One of the women's mentioned uh, trauma. And I said, I told a story about me having trauma and dealing with trauma in my own life. Yeah. And the rest of the interview went great because when we're able to be vulnerable about our own pain, right? When we're able to say, when, when you're able to say to somebody, Hey, tell me, tell me how you felt. How did you feel when you saw George Floyd um, be murdered by a cop? How did you feel? And what stirred up in you? And then when somebody says, my uncle, I had an uncle that got killed by a cop. Like, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, like, how would I feel? And when we get in that feeling language and then we can have sympathy and empathy and then connect, well, then we can really solve problems, right? Yeah, we solve it based on on mutual respect. Mm -hmm. Right. And so yeah. if I feel that, if I feel it in my heart, then, then I've got a respect for you as a human, yeah. as a person, as a man. And uh, that's where we, we lose the human dignity, mutual respect, uh, which is another way of saying love. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And that's what Jesus wants us to have as, as men and women. Now, now thinking about how did you run a business? Cause you became very, very successful but working with Trammell Crow, uh, your own company became very successful in the real estate world. How do you run a business and uh, and be able to call yourself a Christian, follower of Christ, uh, integrity, and yet work the business world? I mean, wow. sometimes because sometimes to, to a lot of us, we feel like it's two different things. Well, I've got my business, but then I'm also on Sunday, I'm a Christian. Well, I, look, I'll say a few things about that. One is, hey, look, man, if you and I opened up a, a tent making company, those tents better not leak, right? Yeah. Like first things first, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. we're yeah. fishermen. We better catch that fish, you know? So when you start off, like we all have to run our business as well as a business, period, end of story. You've got to have a quality business and we need to pursue education and mentoring and do business in a first class way. Right. Yeah. So you, you got to start and end with that. 
I think the second thing, this one's going to blow your mind, is pay all your bills. Pay all your bills, period. Pay all your bills. You know? Hey, you know, uh, if you're listening right now, you write that one down. <laughs> but well, you're so right. We, we kind of tend to, as followers of Christ, sometimes in this church world, if we're not careful in this little bubble, we're like, yeah, well, you know, it's, we're doing this for the Lord or something. Well, I listen, honest to goodness, I, I paid every bill every time, everywhere, 30 years. A couple of years ago on LinkedIn, a lady connected to me and she went off on me and she hmm. said, you stiffed me on a $300 bill, um, an interior decorator 30 years ago. And I never forgot it. And you'd say you're a Christian man and you didn't pay me, blah, blah. And I responded back and I said, I am so sorry. And it turned out it wasn't me. It was another family <laughs> member. Okay. okay. But I said to her, I said, what are, what are your rates now? And she said, I still charge. It's $300 for a consulting thing. And I said, well, you know what? Um, I, I could use some to your decorating. My wife would love to get some advice. Yeah, you can come out of the house. And I said, and frankly, I'd like, I'd like to pay you for two. She got it. She came to my house and I paid her 600 bucks. Yeah. She did a nice job. She was just consulting thing. But I, I, you know, I, I really felt like, man, I want to do, I want, she, you could tell brother, it'd been 25 years. Yeah, and it, you could right. tell it was right there. It was right there. You know, See, but we, I mean, have, we look at so many big issues, John, mm-hmm. we look at the, the, you know, politics or government or, and we forget it's each per little, each, each person we touch mm-hmm. each little moment. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I'll never forget, there was a, a man who wanted to help us with uh, some things we were doing in, a, in another country. And myself and a couple of, our, of my friends went and uh, we had dinner together. And he treated the wait staff with such degradation. And, and, we, looked at, and we looked at each other afterwards. And we, and in fact, during the dinner, we were looking at each other like, yeah, we're not going to work with this guy. We're not going to work with this person. You know, he... And, and it's, and it's that sense of uh, love, respect, empathy, that we got to have paying your bills is paying your bills is because you love people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you simply went through your whole career and you paid every single bill on time, the right amount. Yeah. That puts you in this like super high percentage. And then I say the last thing, just as far as top things Mm-hmm. I'd say is being aware. Um, it's being aware of employees going through rough time or things in your community. I'll give you an example. My old office was just blocks away from the Pulse nightclub, and but it could have been it, it could have been in Mongolia, man. Like I like when I heard the news about this Pulse nightclub shooting, yeah. I didn't. I, it's not my demographic, and so I didn't know where it was, but it was two blocks away, and I didn't know what to do. And so what it did was um, I sent a letter uh, to the owner of the nightclub, just expressing my grief, just saying, I'm so sorry uh, for your loss and you know what you went through. Man, she and I have stayed in touch. I saw her at an event recently, she came up and hugged me. And I thought, you know, I, I didn't know what to do, but I, I did something, right? And so I, I tell people all the time, like when somebody has something terrible happen, man, if you could just do some little thing. And I would say it like this, as Christians in business, we must be relevant in a time of crisis, right? So like, 
if the big deal closes and all these guys want to go to the strip club, lose my number. Don't call me. Don't right. call me. Don't think about me. But man, if your if your son got arrested and he's in jail and you don't know what to do, I, I want to know. I want to know, and and I want to come. I, I have visited uh, people in prison, and and uh, that's been some of the most biggest blessings in my life. Visit people in the hospital, but yeah. we need to be aware whether it's in the community or around us, and then be relevant to the situations. Yeah, I'm talking with John Crossman. John Crossman uh, with Crossman Conversation Radio Program, and then a philanthropist uh, investor, and you've been in the real estate industry. You've got this this vision of putting real estate programs, uh, education, in historic black colleges. Uh, but I've, I've been I've read some of your things. I've read some of the things you've said about institutional racism, and it really is there still. And it's one of those things we can't just say, "Oh, this is a political deal," uh, or it's going to be solved by government. It really has to become us as brothers, brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like this. If you if you called me and said, John, I got a nephew that's moving to Orlando and they need some advice. What is the advice I would tell your nephew about being successful? Right. If I you know, I've got two daughters, if they were in Fort Worth, what would you tell them? Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about segments of our society who have been historically marginalized and haven't received the information and been treated like members of the family, what advice would we give them? What would we tell them? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's funny because a lot of that advice is very conservative advice, but it's 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 advice that's helpful to make them, you know, experience life in a way that we would want all of our members or family to live. Listen, when we talk about black and white in America, first off, there's the wealth gap, the average black family, average white family, the wealth gap. I promise you the biggest percentage of that is real estate ownership, right? Mm. And then when we connect that to real estate, you know, the lack of real estate education. And some people say to me, well, what percentage of Blacks today go to historically Black colleges versus non? And I'm like, well, obviously, majority go to non-historically Black colleges, yeah. but the influence where their parents went. You I, you know, you Emmett Smith, you're familiar with Emmett Smith, yeah. obviously yeah. being a Fort Worth Dallas guy. I did a fundraiser for him for the FAMU College of Law, and he went to the University of Florida. I went to Florida State. But he knows his history, and he knows how important it is having Black law schools. And by the way... Black schools don't leave out whites. Anybody can go to a black school. Anybody can. In fact, right. Howard was on first black law schools and a lot of white women got their law degrees there because they yeah. couldn't get them from white male law right. schools, right? Yep. So they have, and some people say like, well, do we still need, still need black colleges? And my response is like, well, do we still need the military academies? Do we still need <laughs> BYU? Do we still need, you know, like, you know, my, with, I have one daughter starting college in next month and another one going to senior high school. And, you know, kids need to find the right place for them. I had one guy say to me, he had repeated this, like, I just don't get this whole black college thing. And recently he said to me, well, John, what about these black kids coming up and they don't have fathers in their home? And I said, well, that's a real problem, isn't it? And I said, well, wouldn't you think that that kid going to a black college where they had lots of focused black role models would help them? He goes, yeah. I said, well, you finally got it, didn't you? Like, yeah. all this time, like, we need black colleges. Um, but but they again they're not necessarily uh, a different political or worldview. A lot of times they're very open and welcoming. But we have to lean in, and that's the point. It's being well, aware and leaning. Yeah, right? and and community service. You know, when we talk about that, and you've been very active in your community, and and really poking people and modeling for men uh, across the nation. 
These are these these are the things that you do if you're a follower of Christ. You're outward looking, and for too long the church has looked inward. Yeah, and and we you know it's a frozen chosen, and we got a little thing, and we're going to heaven. And too bad you're not. We just have to look in our communities. For some of us, like you were talking about, two blocks away was that Pulse nightclub. For some of us in the church we attend, and a lot of us may drive over to it, but within two blocks of that church is somebody who needs help. Yeah. Right? Well, listen, uh, how about if there's an assisted living facility in your community? Mm. You know that a lot of people retire and end up in an assisted living facility in Florida. Do you know the average number of days a person assisted living in the state of Florida gets visited per year? No. Two. No. Yeah. Yeah, when my dad was in his final days, you know, we were in there every day. Yeah. Dr. Cole, I would walk past, you know, bed, 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 people all alone. You wouldn't believe how people pass away all alone. I'll mm-hmm. tell you this one. I have a creature habit. I went to the same convenience store all every every couple of days. I go there, get up something to eat as a way to work. And I became friends with a guy, a military veteran, little guy. He was a Marine. And we became buds. And I bought him a Christmas gift. Yeah, yeah. One day I went in there a couple of years ago, and there was a woman there. And I said, hey, where's Gunny? She's like, oh, Gunny died. I was like, what? And so when I went back in the next week, so I'd say, when's the funeral? What's going on? Would you believe Gunny was one of 152 residents of Orange County that died and went unclaimed? Oh. Can you believe that? No one oh. claimed him. I claimed him. And we got him buried over in a military um, you know, cemetery in Central Florida. And they were so kind. They invited me to the service. I went to the service. And there was all these people there honoring the people there. But there were 17 veterans that were honored that day. I was the only person that showed up. Gunny, Gunny had me. The other 16 were all by themselves. No one else showed up. Can you believe that? And my so sister. my point being is that, yeah. you know, look at your heart. Yeah. You know, like whether it's assisted living or uh, prisons or hospitals, you know, Christ gave us the, the book, right? Like Christ said to us, when you're visiting these people, you're visiting me, right? Listen, when people are hospitalized and they get visited by the church, those people will change. When they get visited, when they're in prison, their lives are going to change. And, you know, it's hard. Wealthy people, many times, I think they never hit rock bottom. And so it's hard for them ever to come to a point of submission. When we talk about mm-hmm. it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle yeah, yeah. than a rich person in heaven. To me, that's what that means, yeah. right? Because it's really hard. But when you're stripped of everything, right? And then Christians enter in and are helpful to you. Everything changes. Wow. Look, the, the big, massive mega church and church political, whatever, I don't know that we're ever we're going to be relevant or whatever. But Christ will always be relevant. Yeah, Christians will always, always. be relevant. And we kind of do better when we're on the underside. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're kind yeah. of better when yeah. we're in the minority and we're having to kind of like wink at each other and draw fish in the dirt. And then we're doing things to change people's lives. You know, yeah. that's it. You, you, uh, I look at all your, the things you've done, as you mentioned it, you push back on it. Orlando business journal, CEO of the year, uh, humanitarian of the year, African-American chamber of commerce. But, you know, uh, of all the accolades, maybe a friend of Gunny yeah. might be yeah. one of the greatest accolades. I'll tell you the end of that story. Uh, 
when I was at the cemetery, they, they fold up an American flag and they gave it to me. Wow. And I felt uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Um, I took that flag. I had it put in a shadow box. And then a friend of mine named Ray Watson, who served in the Vietnam War, and another gentleman who is uh, the movie Black Hawk Down is based on him. Mm. Like he's the colonel from that. We went to a museum in Merritt Island, Florida, and we donated Gunny's flag. Uh, we went there. And so you can go to that museum today and it has his full name on it, Gunny. It's on display and it's in honor of all soldiers that that get, get forgotten, right? Yeah. None of that, was it that yeah. a big deal? I mean, it was none of it was, it wasn't a bunch of money. It wasn't, but it started with just being aware and and having a conversation with him and, and building a relationship. Yeah, we are our brother's keeper. Mm-hmm. And the world changes when we're willing to go across the street. Most of us want to go across the ocean or across yeah. the nation. Yeah. But until we're willing to go across the street. My sister Lois, um, there was a, a man sleeping behind the ice machine of the little uh, little uh, market that she was going to down on the corner from her house. And he would sleep there when it was cold and his name was Roland. So she found out that that Roland uh, had special needs, but nobody was taking care of him. And, and so she's a, an attorney and she figured out all the ways that, that it could be, you know, that somebody could come help and she found help for him. And she brought Roland to church and I remember Roland sitting with her and he was, he didn't have any teeth and, and uh, um, you know, on and on and on. So she found the right place. And that was, that's a lot of it. People don't know how to access the Yeah, sure, huge. So she found the right place he could go, found some place he could get in, filled out all the forms, filled out all the stuff. And um, and Roland ended up there. And I got a photo about, I guess about two weeks ago from my sister. And it's Roland with this big smile. She goes, Roland has teeth. <laughs> and it's this big smile. And I did, hardly, you wouldn't even recognize who this guy is. And it was because she said, hey, she walked inside to the little mini mart. She said, who's the guy sleeping behind the ice machine? Because it's warm behind it. It was warm. Yeah. That's why he slept there. Oh, so-and-so. She, that's Roland. He's a brother of those guys that live a couple blocks down. And he comes down here and sleeps because it's warm. And she's like, well, why doesn't he have warmth where, you know, finds out the story, not being taken care of, being marginalized. And she just took a moment. It, you know, she took a moment, picked him up, helped get him clean, got him to the right place. She and her husband, Mark and Lois, uh, saved the life of this man. And you would say, well, but did that change the world? Yes. It changed the world. Why? Because one person at a time changes everything. And Jesus said, he said, it is, that's our true faith. James, what is it? James 127 talks about those, those are the things to take care of the widow and the orphan. That if we'll do that, that all these other things that we tend to reach for and strive for, you know, that become really, they're just wood, hay and stubble. The true riches of life are the flag that sits in that Merritt Island, uh, you know, museum. You know, um, Rolling with the picture of his teeth. It's awesome. I, you've you've seen uh, the Chosen. Have you watched yeah. that show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not an emotional guy, and there's all kinds of stuff out there, and I don't really, you know, doesn't mean much to me. I cry in every episode. And in the first episode <laughs> of the Chosen, right? Uh, I think it was the first episode. Verses saying, 
when Jesus calls to Mary Magdalene. Yeah. And he sees her. He sees yeah. her totally who she is. Yeah. You know, and to be known by Christ. Oh, be known. Gosh. And so yeah. to me, it's like when we're able to see people for who they are and love them in that space. I mean, well, talking with John Crossman, thank you, John, for uh, poking us, for uh, stirring us to good works. And, and thank you for sharing the vulnerability of your story, because that really helps us understand, hey, all of us have a story. All of us have these things. And every single one of us has the spirit of Christ in us that can touch another man's life. Thank you so much for all you're doing. I'm inspired by you and I, I love your show. So thank you. Bless you, John. Great being with you, man. Thank you. You've just experienced Brave Men with Paul Lewis Cole. Paul is president of the Christian Men's Network. Connect with Paul at cmn.men or write to him at paul at cmn.men.